Do you wish that all things wealth and finance were much easier to understand and not presented by a bunch of beige cardigan-wearing geeks? Welcome to the Clever Investor Podcast, where we're dishing up the easiest-to-understand finance program served in bite-sized chunks, so your brain will thank you as your knowledge grows. Hosted by the brilliant Owen Taylor, a multiple award-winning expert with a glorious knack for explaining the complex world of wealth in the simplest of ways. Hey, Clever Investors, and welcome to another show. In the world of sports and finance, the journey from being a high-level professional athlete to using the skills learned to create wealth is a fascinating parallel. Both paths require dedication, resilience, and strategic thinking, but each offers distinct challenges and rewards as well. High-level professional athletes nowadays often measure their success in terms of their physical prowess, competitive achievements, and the fame it attracts. Athletes are often devoting years to rigorous training, mastering their craft, pushing the boundaries of human performance. And these athletes understand that any form of greatness requires sacrifice, hard work, and discipline. This pursuit of excellence becomes their purpose and they live for the thrill of victory. But what happens when it's all over? In the Clever Investor podcast studio today, we have a very special guest. He is a work colleague of mine at Blue Wealth Property. He's also somebody that has uh, spent a fair amount of time being an athlete for many years, understands this side of things, and comes from a family of uh, very well-known professional athletes too. So he understands the other side of this very much. He's also a businessman and he's also an investor himself. So he understands discipline from both sides. Andrew Mortimer, welcome to the Clever Investor Podcast. Tell us a little bit about your your background. Thanks, Owen. No, thanks for having me on. I think you're being very generous by calling me an athlete. Uh, but uh, it, my background, uh, yeah, as you said, I'm a colleague of yours here at Blue Wealth, uh, working in the business development uh, side of the business. Uh, my background is in rugby league. Uh, My family, uh, my father and my uncles played professionally or at least played at the top of the game. It wasn't necessarily fully professional from an income point of view, but uh, they achieved some great things on the footy field. So I've got a a lifelong passion for for the sport. Uh, Played a little bit myself um, at a a lower grade level and um, uh, have also worked in in rugby league over the it, time. It might be lower grade to you, but it was higher grade to me, okay? <laughs> and higher grade to a lot of people that played it. Now, well, the, the, the four or five games that I managed to play of reserve grade are firmly in my mind, <laughs> but no one else's. Um, so you spoke about your, um, your family of semi-professional athletes, but really at the time they were, we could deem them as being professionals, but... Was it like nowadays? Did did they have jobs? They they did. So playing league, and I'm I'm sure it would be the same for AFL and, and other uh, professional sports back in the 80s. It uh, they had to work, 
So it was effectively, you know, they were good at their recreation or good at their sport that they enjoyed playing and uh, hence were able to, you know, play in the top league uh, and and achieve some good things. But they did have to work. Um, My father had, uh, through his career, worked for a few different, uh, I guess, businesses associated with the Bulldogs who he played with and then also had his own uh, sporting outlets, shoe stores, uh, through his career. So unlike the, the, their equivalents today um, who are full-time professionals, yep. they don't do anything else? That, well, not during their playing career. They do the – my understanding is that the NRL and the clubs have uh, education programs and some other, uh, I guess, uh, programs in place to help uh, their players – uh, prepare for life after footy, you know, by uh, through education, through um, sourcing a job. A lot of them, a lot of the players these days come into professional sport at a very young age, fresh out of high school or, you know, a year or two into either a degree or, um, or a, a TAFE course uh, or a trade. So they haven't worked professionally or had a, had a profession, so to speak, uh, prior to potentially, you know, making it in, in the top grade uh, or being on the fringe of that. So, so that they they haven't had to work or don't have to work through their career uh, for an inco- from an income perspective, at least in the in the top grade. So if we're if we're looking at the example then of of rugby league, which which both you and I are, are massive fans of, they are professionals at a a, a very they, they've got a very sort of short small skill set, right? And then what happens traditionally? What happens when their career is over? Well, I think the the wider public, we see the players that manage to play for 10 years plus and manage to then leverage their uh, their playing career into a post either media career or ambassadorial or advocacy role for, for other businesses. But the average NRL career is four years, give or take, uh, with an average income, and it, which is pushing up, but around the sort of 250 to 300,000 per year. So... The, the public see a glamorous side of, you know, um, players earning lots of money and doing all of this, but it's a very, very short window uh, that these professional athletes have to uh, not necessarily set themselves up for life, but to, you know, ensure that they've got the right things in place to, to leverage their career into post-career opportunities, post-playing career opportunities. So you say that the average is four years at an income that – that most of us go, wow, that's fantastic. But average, meaning the middle bit, there's there's a lot that that don't actually get to that. Their career is cut short from from injury, or it could be just that they they didn't get the break that they needed. I know you're doing a lot of work with rugby league clubs as well, with with helping get education out there for it. How do you think things have changed then from the from the 1970s, 80s era to to now? Well, I think one of the good things is that. By the nature of the game going professional and sport, I guess, sport going professional through the sort of 90s, uh, there are a lot more programs like ours, like the one that we're trying to implement and have presented to a few of the clubs that are helping these players uh, to understand what they should be doing and how they can um, you know, set themselves up for post-playing career. Uh, both from a work and a uh, wealth creation point of view. Comparing it to when my father played uh, and my uncles, there was uh, – minimal to no sort of extracurricular programs, if you like, around the playing group. Uh, that said, by the nature of them uh, being 
semi-professional or having a job and having a network, they their mindset was different. You know, it was um, they they had the opportunity to have a life outside of football during their playing career. So they weren't in the bubble as such. Um, it probably changed towards the back end of, of, of Dad's career, but uh, it was uh, relatively normal. So the transition of retiring from league, do you think that was a lot easier in those days than it could be? I, I think now? so. I mean, there's there's good and bad, I guess, stories right throughout each uh, era of the game in terms of uh, players finishing their playing career. But I think it would be – I think it was – because they were living a lot more normal life, a, a lot more um, stable life in regard to employment. Uh, and uh, so it really wasn't as big a come down. Where well, you see a lot of athletes struggle these days if they've had a you know, illustrious career or managed to uh, compete at a high level for a long time uh, to transition back to normal life. I, I mean, it's sometimes the analogy of, of coming out of the armed forces works, but that's you know, a massive exaggeration because it's a different, totally different you know, level of um, uh, occupation. Uh, but it's sort of coming back from an institutionalised um, process where you're told where to be, what to do, uh, how to train, what to eat. You know, you, you're basically monitored through your, through your career. Mm. The the modern day first grade NRL player, they are, if they're not playing for the 80 minutes that we see them on telly running around on the weekend, they are the days after the game, they're then in recovery and retrain and, and how many days a week would they get off? Um, probably one at best. Right. So there's not much opportunity for them to carry on with their bricklaying career no, in that's that right. one day in that's, that one day off. That's right. And there's a bit there's a perception that um you know league AFL players have all this time on their hands in between playing games. It's it's not the case. They're putting in uh certainly in terms of training and then other you know sponsorship commitments, community commitments. They're putting in big hours. So uh, if we then look at the contrast then to to when your dad was playing um, how many days a week were, were they training then? Two to three. Two, two and, to and three. By, and by that, it, it's not a nine to five. You know, the, these guys today are you know, in there getting their skin folds, getting their testing done before they get into the gym and all of this sort of stuff. Uh, in Dad's era, it was probably, you know, two to three training sessions of a couple of hours each um, prior to the game. That is – that. so literally probably the same as what, in the park footy player is doing as well. Yeah, relatively comparable. Comparable, and then going out and and playing, you know, the the big game here. Yes, and uh, at, at a at a very high and brutal level, as then, and then they had to you know pick themselves up and and go and and work their job. If we're looking at the extremes here then, so the 1980s, let's say, when most of the players you're saying were were being paid to play rugby league, but they also had a job. And nowadays where these are full-time professional, proper professional athletes being looked after, groomed for media, the, the, the whole thing like this, there was obviously a transition point where they were not working anymore in a, in a nine-to-five job and being a full-time professional athlete do you think there was a point in time where 
those people were maybe suffering a bit because they didn't have the support that they've got now. I mean, nowadays they've got, you know, player managers and there's support and there's the things that the, that you and, and Blue Wealth are doing with, with educating. Yeah, so it really became proper professional, for want of a better phrase. That's not a very professional way <laughs> to say that. Uh, in the sort of early to mid-90s. Uh, so I think there was a time where you had players like my father and and his counterparts had their work play balance. Then suddenly pay packets have started to uh, rise relative to um, to what they're earning outside of rugby league. Yeah, and so they didn't need to work outside, uh, or at least the top level didn't didn't need to have a, a, another profession. But the support wasn't necessarily there. So I think. There were well, there definitely were people, uh, some athletes, some players that struggled uh, post career uh, transitioning out of that. That said, I think a lot of it also comes back to the individual. Like a lot of the stuff we're doing now, uh, and and other you know the RLPA and other other organisations are doing is you can only lead a horse to water. So you can only put this information, help them, guide them as much as you can. There will be players, and there are some fantastic stories of players uh, currently. Who are who are investing? Who are educating themselves? Who are preparing themselves for life after rugby league? And these are you know top level names as, as well as mid tier names, if you like. And there were players back in that you know transition to professionalism that also could handle the exit. You know, earned at that time good money, uh, mm. and then were happy to exit. Well, were capable and able to transition out of out of their footy career. So it does come back to the individual a, a little bit, but that's why the support these days is so much more important or has built to this point because each year it's increasingly becoming, you know, additionally professional in terms of time requirements, in terms of, you know, body management, in terms of everything that uh, the athlete, the player, needs Mm. to do to put themselves on the field each week. And there's only, I suppose, so many careers in the media and and for uh, at the club itself for for these athletes. Definitely. There's it's only a real um, well, one of the things Dad used to say to me when I was attempting to become a professional rugby league player and, and come up through the grades is, you know, to keep level heads is there's only, you know, the, he would say there's, you know, 300 halfbacks across, you know, New South Wales for argument's sake, only 30 of them are going to get into the next tier uh, and then of those 30, only sort of three are going to make a, a long, long-term, you know, career out of it. So he was sort of trying to keep things in check in that it's a very hard, um, I guess, achievement to get to the one top of the game mm. to then have uh, a career length uh, and um, I guess experiences through that career that puts you in good stead to then leverage that into a media career. There's only X amount of commentator roles going around. And uh, so for the vast majority of firstly, the players that don't make it, that don't necessarily achieve an NRL career, they have to obviously have a vocation or have you know, be working towards something um, in the event that they don't achieve what they want to. And then even for the players that do, as we touched on before, their, their career on average is four years. So there's, there's players that will play one year, you know. So they're not going to have a career that allows them to leverage it into post-career opportunities. They need to be you know, actively working or actively working towards a profession. And so if we go back to this high amount of income that um, young minds can get um, very soon, it could all go to mud. Well, it's 
it's actually, uh, I guess, almost like a Trojan horse. It's, it's you get this cash, uh, you know, get this great earning capacity early in your career. I, I think in in our presentation we we look at it at six times. Uh, you know, a twenty one year old playing NRL is earning on average six times uh, what his or her uh, counterpart, you know, just going through uni or going through a trade is earning. So they've got this early boost of income but not the skills generally to know how to manage that and know what to do with that. And then they only have it for a short amount of time. So their friend who's gone to uni or got, who's getting a trade or you know, an apprenticeship, their earning potential, earning uh, trajectory over time is, is steadily up. Where the NRL athlete or, or you know, the professional athlete potentially has this great spike early in their 20s that drops off a cliff quickly and if they haven't, one, put that money to use or two, taken the opportunity they have while they're in the professional system to set themselves up for a career, for, for a, a profession from, you know, let's say the age of 25, 26, there's a lot of your life left after that that you need to um, work for and fund. So it can actually work to their detriment uh, if they don't have the right people around them guiding them. Mm. And and I think, as you said, if, if you look at – a graph of this, the the uh, I'm hastened to say it, but the average Australian um, early, you know, in their in their late teens, you know, the 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 wage is slowly growing over time. It peaks at a, at a certain point in our life, and then you know, it's it remains around that sort of thing. And if we looked at that across the the average person's working life, if you looked at that purely from an economics point of view, it's better to just go and get a job. That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Your career earnings, if you like. It's uh, the traditional go and get a job, get a trade, get an apprenticeship, get a uni degree and go and find a job is going to put you in a greater position on average over the long term than if you manage to uh, become an, uh, an athlete at a young age. So tell us about the the work and, and the initiatives that you've been working on with the team. What's the objective from the end of it, for the from the players' point of view. So the program we've built, the the presentations that um, that Tony and myself have presented to a few of the clubs. We've been in front of two clubs a couple of times now, and uh, getting in front of a few others, and had meetings across the game. The presentation is a variation of Blue Wealth Wealth Through Property presentation, which basically drills into the why we should be investing. And I guess the central theme of our standard presentation, if you like, is you should invest because that's going to be the most effective way to set yourself up for retirement and have, a, have the retirement you want or you know, have financial choices in the future. Where the theme of the NRL presentation, if you like, is similar in that you should be thinking about the long term, but it's more about you guys have a great opportunity for a small window of time. This is what you should be doing with it. You know, You should be looking at investing. You should be looking at using the resources around you during your short NRL career to network, to uh, skill yourself up for, for post-career. So the presentation really drills into trying to get them to realise they've got a great opportunity, but they need to do they need to make the most of it. And they're not necessarily going to be a professional athlete Correct. for all their work in And they life. don't, like, it's one of the things that uh, athlete in any pursuit, and now I think even more so in, like, athletics and swimming where – you really get one chance every four years to to hit the heights in terms of the Olympics is you don't want to think about what if it doesn't happen. 
you don't want to think about if I don't make it, if I have an injury, if I if it doesn't work out. You have to have 100% focus, as you said in the intro, on the goal you're trying to achieve and put your effort, energy um, and will into achieving that. So for someone to come in into your world and say, hey, uh, you might only play for three years, you need to think about what's going to happen after – is, is a hard thing for a lot of these guys to, to grasp with, but it's important. So when we've got these these junior players that, that haven't made it to NRL level just yet, they're coming up through the uh, the ranks, are the clubs then sort of pitching to them how they're going to help look after them later on or is it just about this is how much we're going to pay you? No, the clubs are doing that and, uh, and we're part of that as well. So the uh, sort of under 21s, under 19s, across the club land, they have, you know, inductions. They, they, they provide all the information that the young player needs to be part of the club and, and to sort of onboard themselves. Uh, and part of that is uh, a bit of financial education, of which we're, we're a part of that as well. So it's about giving these younger guys uh, the knowledge or at least the exposure that, hey, if you're going to have an NRL career or a rugby league career, that's fantastic, but these are the stuff you should put in place, you know, hopefully before you hit those heights. Mm. And uh, so, the, yeah, the clubs are clubs are taking on that responsibility, which is good. Uh, and it, it's important because a lot of these kids, as we said before, they, they're fresh out of school. They haven't got the life experience to know some of the basic financial literacy and other things that, you know, a, a lot of us would take for granted. Uh, so it's important that – and it's not just incumbent on the clubs – it's incumbent on everyone who's you know involved in the, with these young players to help them get the knowledge and skills they need just to live their life and operate. Yeah, I mean, I think as as someone who is a, a professional educator, I, I think it's great to see the the shift that's actually happened. Both you and I have got kids. Your kids lot lot younger than my child, but they're growing up with a with a with an understanding of um, how to and what not to and 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 how to do things. And and a lot of these people aren't exposed to it. So I mean, that they aren't. And and yeah, both your boy and my boys, they're they're around it. Um, mine aren't in that headspace yet. Obviously, they're still worried about lollies after footy and all that sort of stuff. But um, they're going to be exposed to that through my work, through um, through our family. And that's one thing that I think Dad was very fortunate about and my uncles uh, when they came through because there wasn't, as we've touched on, there wasn't the infrastructure around them to help them create their wealth and set up, um, set up uh, post-career uh, investment opportunities. But my grandfather was very big on buy property. Whenever you get, whenever you can, just buy property, buy your house, pay it off. And back in those days, you could pay your house off in a relatively smaller time frame than you can today. Mm-hmm. So without the, I guess, the robust education, Dad and my uncles were put on the right path in regards to how to look after their their money and invest. We've benefited as 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 their their offspring, and now those lessons have been part, uh, passed on to us. And then, you know, hence, I think, while I'm working, where I'm working. Yeah. So, do you think your dad and that era of player, because they because they worked, there was a, a, a different understanding about money slash wealth that they literally were schooling themselves. They're kind of doing what the the players' association are sort of aiming towards, sort of educating them. They kind of self educated themselves back then because they knew that it was it wasn't a a full-time career for them? I think they probably, this might be a 
bit harsher. So they probably respected money a bit more uh, back then. Yeah, they had to. There was less stuff to spend money on. Well, that's true. <laughs> you uh, had two yeah. cars to choose from. You didn't have you online have a shopping or anything. Or a Ford, and that's it. <laughs> right? That's right, yeah. No, no online shopping. No, uh, Not everyone went on a holiday twice a year, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there was probably that helped, but uh, I think the fact that they had to work for a living um, just kept them in a in a – you know, relatively conservative, normal, normal is probably not the right word, but, you know, it's, it's sort of standard living, standard of living because they weren't earning even, be it through uh, their employment or through their uh, rugby league contracts, they weren't earning six times what their neighbour was earning. You know, they were, they were maybe a pinch better off, but nothing ridiculously lavish. So they, they had to respect money. Yeah. Had to know how to, how to budget, how to... You know uh, how to make it. How you know how to turn one into two and all that sort of stuff. So yet again, education is the key. Thank you for coming in today. Um, Pleasure, mate. We will we'll definitely get you back again because there's a lot of oh, it's, there's a lot of parallels. We talk about this a lot within the office. There's a lot of parallels between what a smart athlete and uh, and someone trying to create their wealth will actually go through. There's there are, there are definite parallels with that as well. So um, we can talk more about this and we will I'm too. Sh- I'm sure we will and I'm uh, sure that we might have to also come on on a different tangent and, and do a dad dad joke episode or something. Yeah, like so, so uh, Andrew and I, or Mortz as he's known in the office, we're both known as uh, um, for our brilliant, brilliant dad Exceptional. jokes. Exceptional dad jokes. Uh, we spend a fair bit of time... Uh, uh, traveling around the countryside going and, and presenting together and and we we come up with a lot of great dad jokes along the way and we, we think they are anyway they're not appreciated by a lot of people <laughs> no. as well so we can definitely we can definitely do that as well but thank you again for coming in uh, Andrew uh, wealth and I, it's great to actually hear the other side of it because I was never a professional athlete um, nor anybody in my family ever was so it's actually really interesting to to hear the other side of it, and especially from a really that golden era in in uh, rugby league <laughs> as well. So thank you for coming in. If you enjoyed today's show, please hit the like button. Leave us a comment uh, if you've got any questions uh, around anything to for for us or for for Andrew as well then um, please pop it in the uh, chat box, send us an email, contact us here, and we'll see you again next week for another edition of the Clever Investor Podcast. You have been listening to the Clever Investor Podcast, proudly sponsored this week by Blue Wealth Property. Are you ready to start a new investment journey? Get in touch with the industry leaders, Blue Wealth Property. Blue Wealth have a proven track record in using research to identify growth markets. And Blue Wealth have supported thousands of Australians to buy the right property in the right market at the right time. Go to bluewealth.com.au.